Thank you, Don. Well, we are continuing in our series on encountering Jesus. We've got today plus two more weeks, and then we're going to jump into a new series called God Is, where we're through the fall we're going to be taking a look at the attributes of God. And so I'm excited about that because it's going to tie in what the teenagers are doing in their Sunday school class and on Wednesday nights and what the adult classes are doing um, on Sunday mornings as well uh, to what the, what the sermons are. So we're excited to be able to share that with you. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 24. I want to give you just a couple words of background here before we get to our primary text. Look at Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now it says right clearly there in the scripture that the uh, conversation that ensues deals with the temple that was there in the year 29, maybe 30 AD uh, that Jesus was looking at. Look at verse 2, it says, do you see all these things, he asked. In other words, the temple itself, the structure, the courtyard. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, I have a picture for you, and it's a picture, an artistic uh, uh, interpretation or whatever you want to call it, illustration of what happened in 70 A.D. In the year 70 A.D., Emperor Titus um, led his, uh, was it Titus? Yeah, it was Titus, I want to say. Yeah, his dad was, um, anyhow, having a little bit of a moment there. But Titus led the uh, Roman uh, legions uh, down uh, to crush the Jewish revolt that had happened in 66 A.D. And in 69 A.D., they came down around uh, the, the corner, the northern corner of the Mediterranean Sea and headed down toward Israel and began to just put down the Jewish people to exterminate the local population. And they finally made their way to Jerusalem and encircled the city. And so you see there on the uh, precipice of, I don't know if you can see it well enough, but on the precipice of the cliff, you see Titus leading the Roman legions against the city and the city in the background burning. And literally, just what Jesus said, not one stone of the temple was left on another. They wiped the slate clean of every single stone of that temple right down to the foundation itself to where all that's left today is what's called the wailing wall. It was kind of like when you build in your backyard with railroad ties, a little wall to hold up a piece of earth. That's what was there. And so that was the only thing that's left. And so the Jews are still going to that wailing wall today and they're putting little prayers in the wailing wall, praying that God would again restore the temple and restore Israel to its rightful place. And so, but all that happened 2,000 years ago in 70 AD and Jesus predicted it right here in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of the coming of your age? And then what ensues in the, in the following verses in chapter 24 and in chapter 25 is Jesus talking about the different things that they can expect to happen leading up to the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. So the context here is about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I also want you to note there in verse 3 that Jesus is talking not to the unbelieving crowds. Jesus is not talking to the unbelieving rabbis. Jesus is rather talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have made a decision to follow Jesus, and that becomes very important when we look at our primary text for today. So let's flip over to that text, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to stand. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 25, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Good bit of scripture here to read today. I'm going to ask if you would just hang in there with me. Let's read this together. This is the parable Jesus tells of the ten virgins. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. You may be seated. All right, so let's walk through these verses together. Again, keeping in mind the context of what's taking place here, who Jesus is talking to. Keeping all that in mind, let's look begin at verse 1. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, notice here that this whole parable that Jesus tells is around the subject of a Jewish wedding. And there were certain customs that, were, that took place in Jesus' day. And one of those customs was for the bridegroom um, to prepare herself at her father's house, at her home, and she'd have bride, bridesmaids that would be attendants to her that would help her. It was customary to have ten back in that day, and so that's the ten virgins here in the story. And she would be preparing herself for this wedding. Um, notice that this took place at the bride's house. The groom comes to the bride's house, and it was customary in Jesus' day for him to then retrieve the bride, as well as the wedding party, the family, the the friends that are going to celebrate this wedding together, and then they would march through the streets of town, march through uh, to the groom's house, and then stop at the groom's door of his home, and then the wedding ceremony would take place, and then everybody would go inside, and they would um, begin the celebration of the wedding together. Um, the final insight that I want you to get in relation to this story is that this wedding march never took place during daylight hours. They didn't have 12 o'clock weddings. They didn't have 4 o'clock weddings. They had weddings that always took place after dark. And that explains why these bridesmaids, these 10 virgins, would have had torches or lamps as they did here in the story. And so they'd have these lamps and they would be burning through the night and they're waiting for the groom to come. And the interesting thing is to kind of keep everybody kind of make it a little bit maybe more romantic the groom wouldn't tell the bride when he was going to come and retrieve her he wouldn't tell the family when he was going to come he would just show up unannounced and unexpected and then it was time for the wedding march to take place uh, look at verse two with me it says five of these virgins were foolish and five of them were wise you say well what made the wise one wise what made the foolish ones foolish well look at verse three the foolish ones took their lamps like they were supposed to, but they didn't bring any extra oil. And here's what separates the wise ones from them. Verse 4, it says, But the wise virgins took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. You say, Gordon, why didn't the five foolish virgins bring extra oil with them? I don't know. It's Jesus' story. And that's just what happened in his story. And so that the main point, though, that Jesus is trying to make here is that the groom arrives. He's unannounced. They don't know when he's coming. And that Jesus is saying, hey, look, be ready for the groom when he arrives. Verse 5, the groom was a long time in arriving, however, so they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Verse 6, but then at midnight, the cry rang out, hey, he's here, the guy's here, the groom is here, everyone go out to meet him. Verse 7, then all ten virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. Verse 8, but the foolish virgins said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. We've been here waiting on this guy all night. I mean, you know... You married, you're marrying this guy, he just seems to be late. And so we've been waiting here all night. It's finally midnight, and he's finally showing up. But when he shows up, our lamps have burned down. We didn't bring extra oil with us. And so uh, 
so here's the re- response of the, uh, of the other ones. They said, no, verse 9, because there will not be enough for us and for you. Instead, go and find some dealer of oil at midnight, right? I guess they had a 24-7 quick trip for lamp oil. I don't know how that worked. But in any case, go buy some for yourselves, verse 10. <clears throat> and while the five foolish virgins were on their way to buy oil, the groom arrived, and the ones who were ready, there's our key word, who were ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door, it says, was shut. Now, again, this was a custom in Jesus' day. When they arrived at the groom's house, they'd have a ceremony there out front, and then they'd go inside, and they would begin the, the, wedding, ceremony, the wedding celebration and all the festivities. And they would bar the door, and the reason why they bar the door is because they didn't want anybody barging in and disrupting uh, the celebration that was taking place. And so, verse 11, later on the other virgins arrived, Sir, sir, open the door for us. Here comes the groom's response. But the groom replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I don't even know you, he says. In other words, you're too late. You missed the wedding. Verse 13, last verse, and this is the summation of Jesus' point in telling the parable. The groom says, therefore, be ready. Be ready. For you do not know the day or the hour when I'll come. Now, that's the end of the parable, which means it's time for us to ask a really important question. It's a question we ask every week around here. And that question is, what difference is all... You're on your seat here. You're on your seat, edge of your seat there for that one, right? What difference does all this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, I'm already married. Or maybe if I'm not married, you know, I, I, I know we don't have to walk through town with torches. I mean, so what difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. And to answer that, I want to give it, begin by identifying the characters in the story. The first character that we run into in the story, and the, perhaps the main character in the story here, is the groom. Who does the groom represent in real life? Jesus. There you go. You said it right. Jesus. Uh, Jesus returning in all of his wrath, returning in all of his fury to bring judgment. Uh, and, and, and that happened in 70 A.D. upon the Jewish people, and he will, and he will return again one day. When, and who were the five wise virgins in this story? Well, these are the believers in Christ. These are the people who had made the decision uh, right out of the gate there in, that, in those first couple of decades after Jesus has returned back to heaven to embrace Jesus as their Lord. This is you and I who have made that same decision to become followers of Christ, to put our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, um, and, and as in so doing have escaped the wrath and have escaped the judgment of the coming Lord. What about the foolish virgins? Who were they? Well, there are a lot of people who, um, who have regarded the unbelievers as people who have rejected Jesus' offer of salvation. And not only, um, in other words, that they appeared, because they've rejected Jesus' offer, they appeared at heaven's gates and, you know, in the afterlife, and the doors were barred to them because they didn't embrace Jesus, because they didn't accept him. And so this is the consistent message of the Bible, that if we leave this earth, Without turning to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then heaven's doors will be barred to us. We will arrive, and the groom will tell us, I don't know you, and we will be refused. Uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 26 shares the same thing. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, The Lazarus says, between you and us, in other words, where Lazarus is in heaven and where this rich man is in hell, a great canyon has been fixed so that none may cross over from where you are in hell to where we are here in heaven. And in this story, the rich man didn't avail himself of God's offer of salvation, and as a result of that, he ended up in hell forever. And that's what that story is referring to there. And this is why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, Behold, 
Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is your opportunity to accept Jesus. Friends, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you have not appealed to the work that he did on the cross. Because, friends, you may show up in heaven one day and say, hey, God, I got this whole list of good things that I've done. Look at all my church attendance. Look at all the things that I've done for other people. Look at all the good things that I did. Look at all the things that I gave to other people and say, hey, God, I can come into heaven, right? God's going to say, sorry, the doors are shut to you. And the reason the doors are shut to you, you can be the best Jewish person, you can be the best Hindu person, you can be the best uh, Christian churchgoer person, but if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, heaven's gates will be barred to you. And Paul says to you, as a result, today is the day of salvation. Get that right, get that straight now. Having said all that, however, not the main point of Jesus' parable. Remember the context, who Jesus is sharing this story with. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have already made the decision to follow Jesus. Uh, And so the ten virgins in this story represent believers, five of whom were foolish, five of whom were not ready. So the point of Jesus' parable is to challenge us as believers. Do you get that? The point of Jesus' parable, because of who he's talking to, he's talking to the disciples, believers, is to challenge you and I as believers to make sure that we have got oil in our lamp. So that when the groom arrives, we won't be caught without anything to meet him. And the reason that we want to be ready, friends, is because when we do meet Jesus face to face, Jesus is going to measure Jesus is going to evaluate what we did with the life and the talent and the time that we had while we're here on this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we, that is believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not just folks that refuse Jesus, not just folks that didn't believe in Jesus, but all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us may receive what is due him, For the things we did while in our bodies, that is, while we were here on this earth, whether good or bad. Paul's not talking here about whether or not we get into heaven. Paul is not talking about whether or not the doors of heaven are barred to us. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will get into heaven. Our entry into heaven is not performance-based. Our entry into heaven, rather, is based on the work of Jesus on the cross and whether or not we accepted that. What Paul is talking about here is our reward when we get to heaven, our eternal reward. You know, so you've made it into heaven because you turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but now let's talk about Jesus is going to have a conversation about what you did with the life you had and the talents you had and the time you had and the treasures you had while you were here on this earth. And Paul confirms that, um, that this conversation about our performance on earth with the Lord is coming for each and every one of us. And to put in terms of the parable, God is going to evaluate our lives. God is going to reward us according to how much oil is in our lamp. You say, well, Gordon, I got a question. How do I accumulate more oil? Like, Jesus is coming. He wants me to make sure I got plenty of oil. And how do I make sure I got plenty of oil in my lamp? Well, that's a really great question. The answer is, any time that you or I here on this earth do things to honor the Lord Jesus, that puts oil in your lamp. Any time that we share the Lord Jesus with people, that banks up reward in, in heaven for us. 
Any time that we take a stand for Christ in our workplace, any time that we go out and invite our neighbor to church, any time that we spend time in God's word, any time that we spend time praying with the Lord, that's putting more and more oil in our lamp so that when we get to heaven, we're ready. And so what Jesus is trying to say is whatever we plan to do for Jesus in this life, don't wait. Do it now. Today is the day to get started on that. You know, some of us have been saying, you know what? I'll make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'll commit my life fully to him someday. Some of us are saying, you know what? I'm going to share Jesus with my family member someday. I'll take a stand for Christ in my workplace someday. I'm going to invite my neighbor to church someday. Someday I'm going to have those family devotions. And friends, the message of the parable is Jesus isn't interested in someday. Jesus is interested in what are you doing for me now? You know, every great man and woman of the Bible understood this principle and lived according to this principle. Abraham was asked by God, invited by God, said, hey, look, I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to leave your job. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a foreign territory, and there I will provide for you. And Abraham said, yes, Lord, I'll do it right now. Nehemiah in the scriptures was invited by God to go back from the land of Babylon back to Israel and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah said, yes, Lord, I'll do it right now. The prophet Elijah, Elisha was out one day plowing in his fields and another prophet Elijah came along and Elijah said, God has told me that you're to come with me and you are to be the next person to follow in my footsteps. And but you have to come right now. And the scriptures say that Elisha, while he was out with his oxen, still hitched to the plow, let go of the plow, and went and followed where the Lord was calling. And Peter and Andrew were mending their nets along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said, come and follow me. And the scriptures say they dropped their nets on the spot, left the boats right there along the seashore, and followed the Lord Jesus where he asked them to go. You see, wise men and women understand that when it comes to accumulating oil in our lamp, the time to do it is not someday. The time to do it is now. Farmers, you know this. We've got a few farmers around here, folks tending cattle, out uh, making hay. And what, is the, what does the saying go? It says, make hay while the sun is shining. That's right. You can't say, hey, you know what, I'll get to that tomorrow because during the night there may be a rainstorm come through and your hay gets all ruined, right? So you've got to make hay while the sun is shining. Same thing, the time to live for Jesus, friends, is now. God is not looking for someday Christians. God is looking for right now Christians. You may be familiar with the name of Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was a famous evangelist from the 1800s. Um, his biographer shared that he led over a million people to Christ. Whew. Didn't have TV back then. Didn't have stadiums full of people back then. One guy in those days, and he led over a million people to Christ. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? Well, all this got started in the year 1860 when Moody got uh, didn't get a phone call, got a knock on his door perhaps, or a note across town. I don't know how they communicated in Chicago back in the day. But uh, it was one of the Sunday school teachers at his church, and the Sunday school teacher taught one of the elementary age girls' classes. And so his Sunday school teacher said, hey, look, I'm not feeling well. I need somebody to substitute for me. And Moody said, well, fine, I'll, I'll be glad to fill in for you. So Moody went to Sunday school that Sunday and led those elementary girls in their Sunday school lesson. And here's what Moody had to say about that experience. He wrote, and it wasn't good, Without exception, they were the most frivolous set of girls I ever met. They laughed in my face, and I felt like opening the door and telling them to get out and never come back. 
not a real good start, right? Well, the next week, the Sunday school teacher came to Moody, and he said, hey, look, I've talked to the doctors. I've got a major lung condition, and the doctors say, I've got to get out of Chicago. I've got to move south and get toward warmer weather, or else my time here on this earth is very short. And so the man had a kind of a forlorn look on his face, and Moody said, well, besides that, I mean, what does it seem to be what's really bothering you? And the guy said, well, I have been intending to lead these young ladies to Christ now for years. I've been leading their Sunday school class. I've been intending to share Christ with them and lead them toward Christ. He said, but I feel like I've let them down. I feel like my time with them has been a loss. And so Moody said, well, why not right now? And so Moody and the man went uh, out through town and went to the first uh, young lady's house, and there was no laughter. And uh, <clears throat> the, lady, the young lady, uh, they shared Christ with her, and before long, tears filled her eyes, Moody writes, and after explaining how to become a Christian to her, the teacher suggested that I lead her in a prayer. Moody writes, I'd never done such a thing in my life as to ask God to convert a young lady right then and there, but I prayed, and God answered our prayers. Now, for the next 10 days, Moody and this Sunday school teacher went around to each of those young ladies' Sunday school class and led each one of them to Christ. And when the teacher left town uh, just a few weeks later, the entire class and Moody all met him at the train station, and they stood there on the, uh, <clears throat> on the platform as the teacher stood on the back uh, little platform of the, ba of the back train car, and he stood there uh, waving goodbye. And uh, Moody said, what a meeting it was. He said, we tried to sing, but we all broke down in tears. And the last we saw of the dying teacher, he was standing on the platform of the rear car with one finger pointing upward toward heaven to indicate that one day he would see us all there. I cried when I read that story. It's pretty amazing. Now listen, that's a really great story. But there's even more. Because that incident in Moody's life radically altered the course of the rest of his life. He writes, the greatest struggle of my life took place after all this. He said, should I give up my business and give my life to Christian work or not? And Moody concluded, I've never regretted my choice. Now, what we need to ask is, what was it about this event that so turned the tables and altered the course of Moody's life? Well, Moody went from being a someday Christian to being a right-now Christian. He recognized that rather than being a Christian of good intent and the things that I want to do for Jesus, he's decided, you know what, just like we went around with that Sunday school teacher that day, we need to be doing those right now. Friends, there are over one million souls in heaven today that are glad that Moody made that decision. So if I may, I'd like to go from preaching to meddling. Can we do that for a minute? I want to say that as followers of Christ, this is what God wants from you and I. He doesn't want for us to be someday Christians. He wants for us to be right now Christians. And so the question for us to ask is, what does God want from us right now? Listen, folks, being a scratch golfer when you get to heaven, it won't matter. Having a super clean house when you get to heaven, that's wonderful. But when you get to heaven, it won't matter. Having designer shoes when you get to heaven, it won't matter. The only thing that matters is what we lay at the Lord Jesus' feet when we get to heaven. That's the only thing that matters. And as your pastor and as your friend, I want to challenge you to have your devotions now. To pray, 
now. To invite your neighbor to church now. To take a stand in your workplace for Christ now. Because far too often, friends, someday, someday never comes. Here's the question I want to leave you with today. And you talk about this over lunch. You talk about this on the ride home. And here's the question. What is God asking you to do now? Where is God leading you to serve him? What risk does he want you to take? What step of faith is he petitioning you with? And then the follow-up question that is, am I willing to do it now? Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today where we live from your timeless truth. As your Holy Spirit stirs in our hearts, we ask, Lord, that you would put your finger on that issue of obedience, on that issue of sharing Christ, of inviting a neighbor, of spending time in quiet daily with you, whatever it is, Lord, that you are calling us to. And may we, in the quiet moments of communion today, say, like Abraham, like Nehemiah, like Elisha, like Peter and Andrew, Yes, Lord, I'll do that right now. We submit this quiet space to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.